Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look back at verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now Saul, Saul. I think most of us are familiar enough with the story of Saul of Tarsus to know that this is a pretty pivotal chapter of Scripture. The greatest threat to the early Christians, to the early church, the greatest threat to those belonging to the way encounters Jesus Christ. In fact, the heading over this chapter in my Bible says the conversion of Saul. It's a great way of saying it. But this is more than just a scared into another belief system conversion. This is more than just a I changed my religious views conversion. This is a God showed himself real to me and by his grace I am forever changed conversion. That's essentially what a conversion is. It's an event that results in transformation, a transforming of one's nature, a transforming of one's purpose. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts chapter 9 with Saul. There's kind of a before and after picture that we see. Before, like it says here in verse 1, it says that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, Paul wasn't just against this movement called Christianity, called the way. He literally hated Christians. He hated those that were following Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul asked if he could go to Damascus. Why would he do that? Why would Paul ask to go to Damascus? Damascus, Syria, was like 130 miles away from Jerusalem. So this would have been like a six-day journey for him. Why would he want to do that? Why would he want to put the time and effort and money into going to Damascus? It's because he knew that Damascus was the hub of a huge commercial network. And so the influence of Damascus stretched all the way to northern Syria, to Mesopotamia, to Anatolia, to Persia, uh, Arabia, all of these areas. Paul was a smart guy. He knew that. And he knew that if the way flourished in Damascus, it would spread like wildfire. And so his mission was to stop this thing for good in Damascus. See, his nature was one of hatred and one of bigotry. Anything that wasn't Jewish, anything that wasn't Hebrew, Gentiles and certainly Christian, he opposed these things. His purpose was to destroy the reputation of and cut off the influence of Jesus Christ. That was what his nature was. That's what his purpose was. But then after after his conversion, after this transformation, look at verse 20. It says that immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying he is the Son of God. Paul was obviously forever changed by this encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. His nature used to be one of hatred, and bigotry, but now it was one of love. And let me just say one of unity. I mean, how many times in his letters to the different churches do we see him promoting oneness within the body and oneness with Christ? His nature was now one of love and unity. But his purpose used to be to destroy the reputation of Jesus Christ, to cut off the influence of Jesus Christ. But now his purpose was to boast of the reputation of and further the influence of of Jesus Christ. Now, what could possibly promote such a change in a person? I mean, what did it take to promote that change in you? 
And what did it take to promote that change in me? And if that conversion, if that transformation has not happened to you, what will it take to make that happen for you? Well, let's keep going. Let's look at verse four. It says, Saul, Saul. Let me just say that Saul had it all. Saul had it all. Some of you may be familiar with Philippians chapter three. This is where Saul gives kind of a list of his credentials. He starts out by saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. If you know anything about the covenant that God made with Abraham, the father of their faith, you know that it had a lot to do with circumcision. He goes on to say, I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm an Israelite, man. He goes even further to say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I don't have time to go into why that's significant, but it's very significant that he was able to say, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Then he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, I speak Hebrew. My mom and dad are Hebrew. I'm full blood Hebrew. He goes on to say, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Some of you may know that, that Saul's dad was a Pharisee. And he studied, Saul studied under one of the most prominent Pharisees of the day. And so the fact that he's a Pharisee is a big deal to his listeners. Then he goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What else do you need to see? I got zeal. Then look what he says. As to the righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. And we know that God gave Moses a stack of laws for the Israelites to obey. But what you may not know is that the Pharisees, the order of the Pharisees came along and they began adding to the law, the law of Moses, all kinds of little goofy laws. And what Paul is saying is not only the law of Moses, but also the Pharisaical law, I am found blameless. And he probably was. He was probably so legalistic that he had all of those laws down to a T in his life. And because of this, we know because of all these things, Paul was probably a very esteemed guy. I mean, he was brilliant and he could hold his own in any conversation, any debate, any social setting that he found himself in. I'm sure that Saul thought very highly of himself. But then you have to remember the transformation, the before and after. Yeah, Paul before probably thought highly of himself and probably knew others thought highly of him. But afterwards, his perception of himself had changed and he urges others to change their perception of themselves. Remember when he writes the Romans in chapter 12, verse three, he says, because of the kindness that God has shown me, I ask you not to think of yourselves more highly than you should. I love that. Because of the kindness that God has shown me, because of the kindness. Now let's look back at verse four. You know, a lot of people read verses four through six as though this was a harsh encounter, like Jesus was yelling at Saul or something. You know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city. I just don't think it was a harsh encounter at all. I don't even believe that God was raising his voice. I mean, first of all, it says that he heard a voice saying, not yelling. A lot of us view God as this yelling God. I'm just not so sure that God yells like that. Now, what I do think is significant is the fact that Jesus says Paul's name twice. Jesus says Paul's name twice. Now, there's a lot of scholars and teachers that'll say this is probably because he was establishing Saul in his ministry. He was saving him and establishing 
him. And that may very well be true. But what if God says Saul's name twice because he was moved to compassion? What if he says his name twice because in his heart he was moved to compassion towards Saul? And the reason I say that is because there's other places in Scripture where God says people's name twice. And I want to show you a few of those to show you why I think it might be because he's moved to compassion for those people. Now, the first place I want to show you is in 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is where we see Samuel, the great prophet and judge of Israel, when he's still just a boy. And God comes to him one night and says, Samuel, Samuel, I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken. God was about to judge the house of Eli for the disobedience of his sons and for Eli's lack of effort to restrain his sons. Eli was the high priest and the judge at the time over Israel and his sons were priests. But his sons were abusing the privileges of being priests. They were dipping into the tithe. They were doing all kinds of strange things. And God says, I'm going to judge the whole house of Eli. Well, you have to remember, Eli was the mentor of Samuel. Samuel had grown up in the house of Eli. And this would have been very painful, not just for the nation of Israel, but also for Samuel. And I believe God had compassion on Samuel, for Samuel. Second place is with Martha. Remember, we talked a little bit about this last week. Luke chapter 10, verse 41 is where Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. See, I think Jesus knew that her workaholic tendencies and her victim mentality and her resentment towards her little sister were only scratching the surface of her issues. God knew the depths of her heart. Jesus understood what was going on in the depths of her heart, and I believe that he had compassion for her. Okay, let's look at Luke 22, verse 31. This is where Jesus says Simon Peter's name twice. Before he changes Simon's name to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon. And this is where Jesus tells Peter that Satan has asked to sift him like wheat. But Jesus didn't say, no, Satan, you can't sift him like wheat. Instead, he says, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith would not fail. Jesus knew that Peter was going to endure a whole lot of stuff. If you remember Peter's life, he went through all kinds of trials. He he was even martyred for his faith. Remember, he's the one that said, if you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down because I will not be crucified like my Lord. And so Jesus, having foreknowledge of what was going to happen to Peter, had compassion on him. Another place is in Matthew 23, verse 37. And this is where Jesus addresses the whole city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings. See, Jesus was thinking forward to when Jerusalem would fall. He knew this and that the temple would be destroyed. Remember, he said that the house would be left desolate. And though he wasn't going to stop the coming judgment, I believe that he did have compassion for Jerusalem. And then, of course, Acts 9, verse 4 is where we're at today. It's where he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, why are you persecuting me? What's going on with you, man? And I believe that God, seeing where Saul was at, had compassion on him. Now, I think that compassion that was extended to Saul was twofold. Let's look kind of back at the, uh, the before and after thing. We know that before his conversion, let's just call it what it is, Saul was lost. He was lost. 
He was zealous for God, yes, but he was lost. He was an extremely talented guy, but he was lost. Paul had accomplished much already in his life, but he was lost. He did not believe the truth about Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul hatefully opposed Jesus Christ and all who did believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, Saul was a mess. The guy was lost. He had done a lot of stuff that was just awful. He deserved to be kicked in the teeth. But this is why I love Psalm 77 verse 9. Psalm 77 verse 9. I want you to turn there and see this in your own Bible. Psalm 77 verse 9 says, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And if you'll notice, it ends that with Selah. Selah is like an accentuation of a thought or a point. It's almost like a dramatic pause. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? I love that. In fact, the word forgotten there, has God forgotten to be gracious? That word means to ignore. Has God ignored his grace? Has God ignored his grace or withdrawn his compassion? No way. No way. I mean, Paul definitely was not getting the picture. He was definitely in the wrong. But God is God. I mean, let me just say that. God is God. And what Paul experienced that day and what many of us have experienced or hopefully will very soon is the wonderful nature of God. And a huge part of that nature is his great compassion. His heart goes out to those who need him. He is moved by our lostness. And I don't even necessarily mean just before we're saved, but even as believers, sometimes our eyes are just closed. We're not able to see. We're, we, we're kind of fumbling around to find our way. God's desire is that we always see the light. And when we are found in any state of lostness, whether as an unbeliever or a believer, his desire is that we see the light. Another psalm that I want you to look at is Psalm 69. This is a time where David was obviously in a state of lostness. He was fumbling around, not able to see or find his way. And he kind of is recovering from that. And he says, oh God, it is you who knows my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Then he says, answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Now, I want to show you two words and, and just kind of show you the original on these. One is, is answer me. Answer means to respond to. He's saying, respond to me, O Lord. And if you're writing things down, I want you to write this down. God does not react the way that man does. God doesn't react the way that man does. He responds. He responds to us. And look what it says down here. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. That word turn to me means to approach. See, God responds according to his divine nature and appropriately approaches man. Let me just kind of say all that together. God does not react the way that man does. We react to things. But God responds to things. And he responds according to his divine nature. And then he appropriately approaches us. He appropriately approaches man. Now, I guess the question would be, what is his divine nature? And what is an appropriate approach? 
Look really quick with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34. This is where God is giving Moses the second set of tablets. Moses had broke the first set of tablets um, that he wrote the law of Moses on, the, uh, the Ten Commandments on. He had broke the first set out of anger, and this is where God has given him the second set, the set that is found in the Ark of the Covenant. And so look at verse 5. It says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And it says the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, this is God passing by and God proclaiming something. This is what God says. This is what he says about himself. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So right here we see God's divine nature. His divine nature at least a huge part of it, if not all of it, is compassion and grace and patience. It's like God's default in dealing with us is compassion, grace, patience, love, truth. It's almost like an equation. It's almost like God is moved to compassion and so is compelled to show us his abundant grace, his sufficient grace. And because his grace is in action, it causes his anger to slow down. And instead of operating in wrath towards us, he operates in love. And in his love, he provides us with the truth that will lead us back to him and set us back on course. Give us our ability to see again. So from a heart of compassion, God offers us truth that will set us free. Remember, his kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness leads us to change. The appropriate response to that truth is for us to humble ourselves and to believe. And if we don't, God will respond appropriately. If you're writing things down, write this down. God will always deal justly with he who does not respond to the truth. God will always deal justly with he who does not respond to the truth. I'm pretty sure that if Saul had said no that day, his life would have looked a lot different. Maybe he would have been blind the rest of his life. Maybe he would have been not only physically blind, but spiritually blind for the rest of his life. Maybe that was his one shot. I don't know, but I'm glad that he didn't say no. He said yes. Paul said yes to the truth. He humbled himself in the sight of the Lord. And right, if you're writing things down, write this down. The appropriate response to truth is always a bowing down. It's always a bowing down. Just like Moses in Exodus 34 says that he made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Here in Acts 9, it says that Paul fell to the ground. There was an immediate reaction an immediate reaction to the truth of God. Now, when Saul did say yes, I believe that it engaged God's compassion on yet another level. We talked about the before, God's compassion extending to Saul in his lostness, but afterwards he was found. Afterwards, Saul was found. His nature had changed. His purpose had changed. His life would be completely different from now on. Now, the way that I believe God was moved to compassion 
was his foreknowledge of what it was going to take for Paul to live for Christ and to promote the new covenant with the same zeal and fervor that he lived as a Pharisee promoting Judaism and the law of Moses. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives a list of all the things that have happened to him since choosing to live for Christ, to promote God's love and his new covenant. He said, five times I received 39 lashes. Now, when he says that, he's talking about the same 39 lashes that Jesus took the day that he was crucified. Five times he received the same beating that Jesus took. I mean, that's crazy. He says, I've, I've been whipped times without numbers. In other words, too many times to count have I been whipped. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, he was three times shipwrecked. He said he spent a night and a day in the open sea, many sleepless nights, beaten with stones, snake bitten. Uh, I mean, all kinds of things he lists there. And he said not to mention the daily burden of leading all these churches. And guess what? I think God was moved to compassion for the difficult things that were sure to come in, in Saul's life. You know, a changing my religious views conversion is pretty easy to walk out. A changing my nature and purpose conversion, that's not easy to walk out. It takes walking closely with a God that is continually moved to compassion on our behalf. And I can assure you that God is moved to compassion by your life. I mean, certainly if devoid of truth, certainly if you have not yet come to know him, if there has not been that transformation, God has a compassion that is reaching out to you and is wooing you back to his heart. But even if you have said yes to Christ, if you have believed in your heart that he's the son of God, that he's born of a virgin, all of these things you've believed and you have been following him, well, guess what? There are still difficult times to, to come. Maybe right now you're walking in difficult times. Times do get tough. In the midst of pursuing God, things can get crazy. Things can seem unfair. Things can get out of control. That's why we need God's divine nature active in our life every day. We need his divine nature because out of his divine nature, he is moved to compassion on our behalf. He is compelled to show that abundant grace, that significant, amazing grace to us. And his anger cools off. His anger slows down. And rather than, than zapping us with his wrath, he extends to us his great, never-ending, unfailing love. And then he always offers us truth. Right now you're hearing truth that could be moving your hearts to get back in line with God. The truth of the gospel, the truth of his love, the truth of his divine nature. But what is your response going to be? God is moved to compassion by your life. He's not given up on you. He is not, um, he's not leaving you or forsaking you. He's moved to compassion, is willing to uh, cool the jets on his anger and extend to you love and to provide you with the truth that will realign you back to his heart and back to his will. But what will your response be? Will you out of pride and self-sufficiency say no? Or will you humble yourself? Will you fall immediately to your feet like Saul did, like Moses did, and say, yes, Lord, change my life?